Welcome to episode number two of Over Here, and today we'll be talking with pianist and composer Chris Ziemba. I like the challenge of creating something from nothing, and I think especially with duo tunes, you can just uh, start a tune without saying anything and just see what happens. It feels very freewheeling, and um, there's no preconception, less preconceptions when you're playing duo. But I still, you know, it still allows me the freedom to do whatever I want, as if I were a solo pianist. Today, we're revisiting a chat that I had with one of our first artists to release an album on Outside in Music. He is a fantastic friend of mine that I've known for a long time, a great pianist and composer. His name is Chris Ziemba. We first got together to chat last year about his album Manhattan Lullaby. It was received with great success by the industry. You can go on his website to check out some of the great reviews uh, that his album got, and you can see where he will be performing next, www.chrisziemba.com. This is one of the first interviews that we did as part of the Outside of Music Meet the Artist series where we were streaming live some interviews onto YouTube, and uh, so the audio Resolution is a little lower than uh, here on the new version of the podcast. Here's our wide-ranging discussion about music in life. Well, uh, I'm leading my quartet. This is my second time since the debut of my album, Manhattan Lullaby. Uh, I'll be joined by Michael Thomas on saxophone and bass clarinet, and the great Jay Anderson on bass, and Jeremy Noller on the drums. And we'll be playing some original music from my album, uh, as well as some arrangements of favorite standards and other tunes that uh, I've come to enjoy over the years. So we got two sets at 8 and 10 p.m. And if you're free and in the area, love to have you there. And uh, you'll be playing some music from your recent release. What's it called? Manhattan Lullaby. came out in uh, March of this year. And you sold all 10,000 copies, right? Well, Hot off the presses. On, yes, yes. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about that that release? Sure. Well, um, they're mostly original compositions, uh, pieces that I've written since I moved to New York in 2011, some of which were written for uh, degree recitals at uh, Juilliard, where I was at for two years, uh, but other ones I've written since. And there's one arrangement of a standard, uh, I Wish I Knew. Um, and the theme of the album uh, kind of plays on the duality of life as it pertains to living in Manhattan. Uh, you think of Manhattan as a very bustling metropolis. There's a lot going on, cars, people, everywhere you look, something's happening. And that's really true. But uh, contrasted with that is this uh, idea, some, something that I've experienced where you can always seem to find uh, peaceful pockets within all of that uh, craziness going on. I mean, that can mean something like walking down the street at uh, a side street at 7 p.m. and no one else is around you. Or you find a little spot in the park and you can't hear anything, you can't hear the traffic, all you hear is the wind and maybe some birds, which you kind of forget that there are birds in Manhattan sometimes, or trees. <laughs> um, 
And so the theme of the album is just kind of re reflects that back and forth because there are some pieces that are certainly more energetic and there are some pieces that were actually written with this, uh, this calmness in mind. And it's not really an artificial calmness. I don't know how to describe it because it's different from if you live out in the country because that's really serene. Like you sure. can put yourself out in the field and, and be aware of the fact that there's maybe nothing going on around you for miles. But if you're in a park in upper Manhattan, you still know that there's a million people around you, but it's it's a little more, um, I guess, uh, what's the, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. It's like a more isolated, a smaller pocket of serenity that you've stumbled upon. I think that's kind of cool. So, totally. My album in a nutshell. Manhattan Lullaby, the, the title kind of reflects that too. It's Manhattan is busy, lullaby, meaning kind of like the evening yourself to sleep sure. peacefulness now i want to cut away to a bit of chris's composition manhattan lullaby the title track from the record on the record chris has some fantastic musicians playing with him he has hans glavishnig on the bass jimmy mcbride and michael thomas uh, who plays alto saxophone and on this track plays the bass clarinet uh, Chris and I also recorded a duet version of this composition on our live CD, Live in Memphis. So this is a favorite composition of mine, of Chris's. I hope you enjoy a little snippet of Manhattan Lullaby. You can start to hear the dualities of life that Chris was so aptly talking about just a moment ago. tracks on the record is your arrangement of uh, I Wish I Knew. Um, do you, was there any particular inspiration for that arrangement? If you haven't listened, checked it out yet, you should go and uh, download that track. Um, uh, I don't know. Let me see. For, for that particular song, first of all, I Wish I Knew is a standard that um, uh, it's one of my more recently learned standards. At this point, I've been playing it for a few years now, so it's, it's kind of, I'm really a big fan of it, uh, by Harry Warren, I believe. Um, and I knew that I really wanted to record it at the time because the tune was still speaking to me. I felt like I had a lot to say on it, but I didn't want to just go into the studio and play the tune, 
in the standard jazz format, play the melody, take a solo, another solo, play the melody out. So I wanted to figure out some sort of arrangement, some something I could do with it. And I don't really think there's much more to it than me spending an afternoon at the piano and just working out some ideas, some different ways to play with the tune, extending some of the phrases, uh, maybe changing a few harmonies here and there. Um, but not not just for the sake of changing it. I wanted to still make it sound like the tune, but everything had to be have a reason for having it. I wanted to create this kind of a. Would you say it's almost a sneaky? It's kind of sneaky. Sneaky kind of vibe it's on the tricky. tune. Tricky, yeah. sneaky. I like that. So it it also provides a nice contrast to the other tunes on the album because I didn't have a standard. I didn't really have a slower walking swing, and I didn't really have anything that you could characterize as. Sneaky, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if sneaky is the right word. You'll have to listen to it. So were there any other compositional influences you had while you were writing? Oh sure, um, and these these are, it's not just specific to the tunes on this album, it's kind of in general, I, I uh, as a composer, I, I feel like probably a lot of pianists would be in the same boat with me here, but I take a lot from Thelonious Monk, one of the greatest, uh, most idiomatic composers of the jazz genre, but also um, from more, you know, recent and current times, I guess, uh, Aaron Parks, Brad Meldow. Uh, there's a tune on my album that was, I wrote specifically um, after hanging out with my mentor for a few years, Frank Kimbrough, who, his mentor was also Paul Blaze. Not really as talked about as some, as some people, certainly not as talked about as he should be, but uh, one of these tunes I wrote with um, Kimbrough's mindset uh, in my head. I wanted to write a piece that um, kind of unfolded at its own pace. So this it was really my first attempt at writing a song that's completely rubato. There's no meter. There's no time. I just wanted to write the piece so it just unfolded naturally. Like the phrases have a certain length. It's like you're breathing, that kind of thing. So that's the very last tune on my album, an introspective. Oh, right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of like a, it's not like, except for that piece, There's I can't say that there's any one composer that has influenced another composition on my album. It's all kind of a mishmash of things I love. I forgot to mention Fred Hirsch. I'm a huge fan of Fred Hirsch's writing. and Really, I guess I tend to gravitate towards um, lyrical, melodies and interesting harm I mean this is kind of sounds really general general lyric uh, lyrical melodies and interesting harmonic motions mm -hmm. but again, I think that describes your, your tunes yeah I guess so but I, I like to think that there's nothing in there that's that's uh, 
in there for the sake of being different. I like to think everything that I put on the album is there for a reason, and I've taken a lot of time to make choices in my mm-hmm. music. So, yeah, it's very thoughtful. I don't know. <laughs> so, in all of this process, putting it out, finding some gigs, leading the band, rehearsing the band, and all that, have you kind of found anything? Uh, to be difficult or any challenges you've encountered along the way? Well, I mean, sure. I think probably the most difficult step was to actually get the ball rolling in the first place. Mm. Um, and uh, it's really, you know, I've had the, I had the idea of doing an album for many years, ever since I left Rochester. It's like, oh, I have to do an album. Because it's kind of like, the first album's kind of a, you can look at it as a benchmark. It's your first product that you spent time molding and creating but uh you know beyond that it's just a snapshot of your development and i didn't want to wait too long to create the first snapshot but you know you can always find excuses to delay doing things like that oh i don't have enough money uh i mean confidence can come into play like i'm not sure if my product is going to be good enough or people going to enjoy it those are all like mental constructions um, well, the money is not. That's a very real consideration. But, <laughs> but the point is, um, you just kind of have to... For me, it was just a matter of setting the date, finding the studio, putting in some research, setting the date, and then things started to fall into place from there. Um, and But then there's considerations after the fact. There's a lot of, you know, when you do the recording, there's still a million steps to be done after the fact as well. And everything takes time and thoughtfulness and again money and being that this is my first time through the whole process I feel like I struggled every bit of the way um, and and for me you know it's just kind of like maintaining the determination to see it through to the end and, and uh, Nick here is very helpful in every step of the process because uh, he's done it a few times I, I kind of look to you for guidance and support and uh, recommendations through every step, so that was very helpful in uh, leading me through, so thank you. It was very easy, it was very easy. That's good. Do you have any advice after going through all of that for anyone that's, you know, thinking about doing a similar thing, making their first record? Yeah, well, um, I I guess I have, well, a general piece of advice is, no matter what you're doing, but specifically as it pertains to having a record, always have a goal in mind. So whether that means you know, your first goal could be picking that studio date so you have a deadline and then everything else is going to fall into place, hopefully, by the time that the recording comes about. But um, whatever the process is, always have a goal. Okay, I want to have this done by then, I want to have this done by then. Keep a log, like write, write out your goals so you can see them. There's something, I think, that when you put it down, you commit it to paper, it becomes more of a, uh, you're beholden to it, you know. Yeah, I so, agree. There's something about writing yeah. shit down. Yeah. Um, and then do your best to keep out those artificial voices that tell you, uh, that, that cause you to procrastinate or cause you to second-guess yourself. And they're things that we all have and we all struggle with in different ways. But uh, those things can be kind of uh, obstructions to the process. So if you can just, you know, treat it more like uh, I don't know, I don't want to, I hesitate to say a school project because no one likes to do school projects, but uh, don't don't treat it, don't give it, don't assign it any artificial weight in your mind, okay? Because sure, you want to have a great project, but you don't, don't let the fear of it being the greatest thing in the world hold you back from doing it. 
So I, that's kind of a no. That's great. That's great that advice. And you know, we were talking right before we started going live about books, and that reminded me of a great book. It's called The War of Art. Oh, I have that one. You have it. You, I haven't read, read it yet. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I do have it. <laughs> Stephen Pressfield. That's a great book that deals exactly with that. Oh, what cool. you're talking about. Uh, he calls it the resistance, in the, but everybody's got that. Mm. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the other projects you're involved with now as a sideman? Sure. Um, I think, uh, well, there's there's a number of them. Uh, there's another one on uh, the Outside In Music label called Cowboys and Frenchmen. And we released our debut album, Rodeo, I believe it was in January. It was in November. November. November of last, of last year. year. Okay. 2015. November. Okay. But anyway, um, and that is a quintet composed of mostly fellow alumni from the Eastman School of Music where I did my undergrad and masters. Um, and then there's uh, the bass player went to Manhattan School. So there's kind of a, a convergence of some of those guys went to Manhattan School after Eastman. And so there's, that's how we all kind of met. Anyway, it's co-led by the two saxophonists, Owen Broder and Ethan Helm. And they have contributed a bunch of really unique originals and arrangements. And it's a unique quintet because both of them are alto saxophonists uh, predominantly. You don't see that a lot in jazz quintet. Usually you use the alto and a tenor or a saxophone and another horn, but these guys play the same instrument. And so they've written music and arrangements in mind to kind of highlight this. Uh, and they, I would say they both have really unique voices. Like they, uh, they, some of the tunes really take a sideways look on what is jazz. Like is this considered Jazz. This takes influences from rock music and, and maybe some classical music in there, you could say. It's very cool, and I, I, I like uh, that's been a creative project. We just uh, were down in Washington, D.C. to participate in the uh, the inaugural D.C. Jazz pre-competition, and we did pretty well for ourselves, I would say, down there. And so I think we're, we're looking to do another album soon. So that's Cowboys and Frenchmen, and a couple other projects that I'm... Uh, at least semi-regularly involved with are the Tammy Sheffer Sextet, and this is actually probably the project that I've been involved with the longest since before I even moved to New York. Um, Tammy Sheffer is an Israeli vocalist uh, and composer, and she leads a sextet um, from different people around the scene, and she writes some really beautiful music, which I would say is uh, without putting words in her mouth, but to me it evokes a lot of uh, kind of Israeli folk melodies and mm. kind of haunting, hauntingly beautiful stuff, but some of it is actually really playful. Um, and so I've been involved with that for a few years. We have an album out on the Inner Circle mu uh, music label called Wake Up, Fall Asleep. And more recently I've become involved with another uh, singer-songwriter sextet led by Aubrey Johnson who uh, is also a beautiful vocalist also a great composer uh, in a very different style from Tammy but again that falls into my love of beautiful strong melodies and, and, and uh, engaging harmonies and um, yeah I don't know so we've we play around it's not I, w I won't say that anything that, that I'm involved with is super regular it's not like we have a steady gig anywhere but uh, the performances we tend to play uh, are very meaningful to us so we play at uh, some of the more desirable venues around town I would say so look forward nice. to the next ones <laughs> nice um, so 
just personally, how can you, how do you balance, you know, all of those projects and being a leader and sideman? Well, um, like that again, that time management is a very important part of uh, being an artist because being an artist uh, means not only, like you said, leading your own stuff. It means uh, playing your role in other bands. Uh, for me, it also means balancing a load of teaching and there's social media things that we have to do, um, other odd job works, you know, like uh, composing, arranging, you have to set aside time for that. So all of these things are eating out of your, the amount of time that you have to do stuff. And it really uh, is beneficial to, for me, I have to make goals. Again, it all comes down to making goals. Like the night before, if I know that I have two hours in the middle of the next day, I'll say, okay, I'm going to spend an hour doing this, I'm going to spend 30 minutes doing this, 20 minutes doing that, and then I try to stick to as rigid of a time frame as I can, because otherwise, if I just let myself go on one, any one thing for too long, I'm just going to keep procrastinating on something else. Sure. sure. So, um, it also means making sure that I put, up, put in enough time on my instrument when I can, and sometimes that's the hardest challenge of all. You know, uh, finding time to sit down and make sure that I'm current on not only my music, but uh, the music for a gig that I'm playing tonight or tomorrow night or next week, you know, so. Uh, no, I think something that you're really great at, and because you do it a lot, is you're being a fantastic sideman and being always being prepared. So what are some of the things that you do to... to give your best effort and, and uh, contribute to your sideman work? What are a couple of things that people might be able to take away? Um, well, hmm. Thank you, first of all. <laughs> that's, that's nice of you to say. Uh, I do like, I do pride myself on trying to be as organized and timely as possible. So from an extra musical perspective, this means to me uh, keeping track of emails, responding to things on time, uh, don't let things slip away. And if you're given music, being responsible for that music, don't lose the music. That's kind of that should be an easy thing to do. But a lot of people have lost music that I've worked with, so you know, <laughs> sure. I was, you know it's okay. It happens to all of us. But trying to minimize the number of times. Um, but but almost as well, almost more importantly, if not more importantly, is, is of course being responsible for learning the music that you're going to be playing. So and uh, you kind of have to figure out how much time that's going to take. Don't wait until the very, don't wait until an hour before you leave for the gig to actually like look at the music if you have it ahead of time and then realize that, oh shoot, there's something really difficult. There's no way I'm going to pull this off. You don't want that. So um, for me, I guess, unless you had uh, another specific question about that, it's, it's about, you know, checking things out with enough time to make sure that you are holding your own on them and offering, feeling comfortable on the music so that you're not scrambling during the gig, mm. making the real leader look not as good. Because sure. when you're a side man, you know, your, your job is to uh, make the leader look good. That's the way I think about it. Mm. It's like, we're there for the leader, we're support. Um, sure, we can offer our individual voices, but when we're not doing that, we just have to make sure that everything we do is services the music, so. Sure, no, I think that's good advice. So I know something else that you have done kind of for a long time is play in a duo format. Mm. And uh, it just so happens that next week we have a record coming out, the digital record only. But uh, 
You can get it on iTunes, so watch out for that next week. We recorded in uh, March of this year. Out in Memphis, we were doing a little little tour, going to a bunch of colleges out that way, and uh, we, we stopped and recorded. But <clears throat> So I know you've made records with Doug Stone of Eastman. You mm. play a lot with uh, Michael Thomas here in a duo setting and, and various other people, I'm sure. <clears throat> Those are just the first few that come to mind. Uh, as a pianist, what are, you know, what, how do you approach playing duo as a different kind of setting than either your trio or, or sideman stuff? Well, I think um, I really enjoy playing duo. Uh, for me, duo is one of the, one of my, well, I can't say that I have a favorite format, but duo, duo is one of the most engaging for me because um, there's a lot of responsibility on you, on me as the pianist. Uh, pretty much the same amount of responsibility as if I were playing solo, but with the added benefit of having an additional voice to interact with. So that's the way I kind of look at it. Um, there, uh, with well, you can play. You know, there's all these de- these elements that you're always dealing with uh, orchestrationally when you're playing piano. You know, how do you uh, create the illusion of having three or four hands to do the the bass, the harmonies, the melodies, counter melodies, what have you, all these elements at the same time. Um, and balancing it with a second player is really uh, enjoyable to me. The music can take any, t- any turn in any direction uh, at a whim. And um, I like the challenge of creating something from nothing. Yeah. And I think especially with duo tunes, you can just uh, start a tune without saying anything and just see what happens. You know, the more people you add into the mix, the more instructions sometimes have to be uh, had, you know, sure. formally speaking. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the, I don't know, I just like the, it feels very freewheeling and um, there's no preconception, less preconceptions when you're playing duo. But I still, you know, it still allows me the freedom to do whatever I want as if I were a solo pianist. Um, and it, it's hard too because, like I said, there's more responsibilities on you, and it's, uh, it's something that I'm constantly working on and constantly listening to examples of um, to try to improve my own uh, orchestrational ability. And I always have really enjoyed playing duos with Chris as well. He's got a really amazing sense of accompanying and a really amazing sense of interaction with whoever he's playing with. So right now what I want to do is cut away to a small sample of doing exactly what Chris was talking about, creating something from nothing and going into a tune that we don't often get to play. This is one by George Shearing called Conception, and it does appear on that Live in Memphis album, which you can find on YouTube or wherever you like to listen to music. Thank you. 
playing pocket, you know, I guess, as it were. And you know, something I think was kind of interesting. We've talked about before in playing in a duo setting is choosing the right kinds of tunes, because uh, not everything always works out super well. That's true. What are some of the for some you know younger pianists that maybe are thinking about trying to play some duo stuff? What are some of the things that maybe to avoid or or tunes? To, to play. I mean, usually standards work out pretty well. Yeah, standards work out pretty well. Um, hmm. You could you could ask any number of people on this, and they may have a different answer. But to me, uh, I try to avoid choosing tunes that tend to be played in a certain way only, um, because you don't want to be put into a box from the very get-go in a duo setting. To me, that's kind of um, the opposite aesthetic from where it needs to be. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't choose a tune and say, oh, I want to play it in this style. Like, for example, we have um, a tune coming up on our release called Chant by the great Duke Pearson. Uh, and I, I guess I guess you could say that that tune can probably only be played in one way. You don't. That's not a tune that can be played too slow or too fast. It's kind of like right in the middle. But um, What am I? What am I trying to say? I just kind of contradicted myself right there. Cause that. Uh, I don't. I don't think you contradicted I? yourself. I think that uh, it's just the discussion we've had before. Some tunes that I've maybe brought in, we've said, we've de- determined that maybe it's too repetitive of harmonic motion. It's not clear enough sure. to uh, to really be flexible and to try to be able to be open to multiple interpretations. Right. So, uh, as an example of a tune that maybe I might not choose to do in a duo format would be a really super burning up-tempo like bop tune because super burning up-tempo bop tunes tend to be played a lot in like trio or quartet fashion that doesn't mean that you can't do it solo but is it going to be as convincing or as solid in a duo format i don't know because you you can't take too many chances with it it has to be a certain thing i guess that's what i'm saying because even though we chose that duke pearson tune um, there's still ample opportunities to create something inside that little world mm-hmm. right there. Any really rewarding musical moments in the last few years mm. being here? Sure, there. Oh man, there's been a lot. I, I mean, I, I kind of treat any opportunity I get to play uh, as a sideman with uh, any of my peers' groups is kind of kind of counts as a rewarding opportunity to me. But a very memorable experience that I've only had once so far is, is playing with the, uh, the Ted Nash Big Band, um, the great uh, alto saxophonist and composer known for his work with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. He put together his own big band, uh, I think it was 2013, um, and we he invited me to perform on it, uh, and uh, we recorded, and we did a week at Dizzy's, um, and that was just a really cool experience to be able to be in a big band setting with some of the top players at the scene, including some from the Jesuit Center Band, uh, but also playing some music that uh, had a lot of personality to it, a lot of Ted's personality. Um, it was a seven movement suite, it's called Chakra, and you can find it uh, online somewhere, I'm sure. Um, so that was cool, and that was a very isolated experience because Ted always he's, he's 
always got the wheels turning, so he's since been on to other projects, other big band projects and things like that, written things for the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra, the Presidential Suite, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I was honored to be a part of that for just uh, a series of months there. Um, and that, all, uh, that also culminated that he uh, rearranged that for quintet as well, and we played that one time. Uh, nice. uh, that, was, that was unique, too. So I don't know, I remember that as one of my most... Uh, one of my favorite experiences so far being in the city. And that's Chris Ziemba, pianist and composer. His latest release, Manhattan Lullaby, on Outside of the Music, back in March of 2016. Hope you've enjoyed this part one of two. We're coming up with a follow-up about Chris and everything he's up to these days in New York and beyond. My name's Nick Finzer, and you're listening to Over Here, the podcast from Outside in Music. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.